two of a series called Power Trip. And, the, and we'll talk about why it's called Power Trip in a second. But uh, we are going through the book of Acts. And Acts is one of those history books that's found in the, in the New Testament. We are in chapter 19. We're starting from verse 11 today. And we're talking about power. And the reason we're talking about power is because throughout the story of the book of Acts, we see a lot of mentions of like God working here, God working there, the church doing this, the church doing that. And power is mentioned every once in a while. But it's not until this section where power becomes like a main theme. And the reason why I don't, you know, I think it's, it hasn't come up until now is because, well, Paul ends up, he finds himself in this place called Ephesus. And in case you don't know where Ephesus is, because today it's not called Ephesus, I'm going to give you a map right here. So this is the world map. And Ephesus is right here at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, this is like Western Turkey. And right here, and this is a port city, and it's a very influential place. It's, it was, at the time, 2,000 years ago, it was the epicenter of progressive culture. It was multi-everything. It was like multicultural, multilingual, multi-religious, multi-everything. And <clears throat> it was also the second largest city in the Roman Empire, only second to Rome, you know? So it's like huge. And, <clears throat> and the, the reason why people like to come there is because there was a place there called the Agora, Agora is a marketplace, and this is where people from the east and the west, they all came together, they did a lot of trade there, they bought stuff, they sold stuff. This was a very, very happening place. Like, think about like a mall, except that was the only mall in town, right? Like, that's like this place to be. And Paul finds himself in this place, and he actually likes it here. As a matter of fact, of all the places he visits, this is the place he stays the longest. He stays here for three years. Like, imagine if you're on tour and you have your own tour bus, and you're going from place to place. And then you get to a place and you're like, you know what? I think I'm going to stay here extra long. Other places, he stayed for like a day, maybe two days, maybe a week, maybe two weeks. There's another place called Corinth. He stayed for a few months. But this place, he stays for three years. And the reason why he stays here for three years is because, well, I think he realized there's a lot of opportunity there, right? You want to tell people about this good news. You want to tell people about how the love of Jesus could change people's lives. <clears throat> And what better place to do it than the place where there's a lot of diversity, there's a lot of different people there. So he goes there and he preaches this message of love. He says, you know, Jesus died for us. He sacrificed for us. He, we didn't deserve it, but he did it anyways. And maybe, because we're his followers now, we should treat the people around us in the same way. Like there's people who don't deserve to be loved because they wronged you several times, but you know what? Let's learn to forgive them. Let's learn to love them. Let's learn to be generous towards them. And Paul's like, you know, who can not like this message? But it turns out there's a lot of people who are threatened by this message. And Paul's like wondering, why? Like, this, I thought this is what we all wanted. Don't we want to tear down walls? Don't we want less racism? Don't we want, like, less, <clears throat> like, hatred in this, in this society? Isn't this what we all want? And he was so surprised that there were so many people who were against this message that he came to this conclusion that maybe there's something else at play here. Maybe there was some spiritual darkness that's happening here. Because he, Paul, you know, he had a very optimistic view of people. He thought, you know, no one wakes up in the mornings thinking, you know what, I'm going to be hate, hateful today. Like, no one wakes up thinking, you know what, I feel like being racist today. Like, nobody feels that way, right? So Paul's like, there has to be something else at play. And so, later on in his journey, he writes a letter to the church of Ephesus. This is where he is right now. Right, saying like, hey, watch out, there might be some powers and principalities. These are the words that he used. He said, there might be some type of power, some spiritual force at play that might be, well, it might be too powerful any of us to conquer. 
So that's why we're calling this series Power Trip, because in this part of his trip, he comes across this power that he's never seen before. He saw hints of it, but he's never seen such a concentration of it until here. So today we're going to be answering this question today. How can I tap into the power of God to perform miracles? Excuse me. Now, the, the reason why we're asking this question and why Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, the reason why he's addressing this issue at this point in the story is because Paul finds himself in a place where there's a lot of power. And if you want to preach a sermon where you want everybody to kind of join your team, like, yes, we're on team love. Yes, we're on team Jesus. You know, if you want that, what better way to do it than to show up to the marketplace or the, the town square of Ephesus and perform a few miracles and people are like, oh, that God is so cool. We want to be on that team. Team Jesus, 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 right? Like, like, what better way to gain a following than to do miracles? I mean, I'm pretty sure Jesus did that, right? Like Paul might be thinking. <laughs> but here's the thing, guys. Um, when we answer this question, you're probably not going to like the answer because it's going to expose a lot of who we really are deep inside depending on how we answer this question. So we're going to start by looking at the first verse of today's section, chapter 19, verse 11, and this is how the story starts. God, excuse me, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now the word did right there, now this is written in Greek, it's translated to English. The word did right there is a verb, and in the Greek language, just like, much like English, has a lot of tenses, like the past tense, present tense, future tense. This is what we call a perfect tense. A perfect tense means that it's happening continually. So when you read this, I don't want you to think God did one extraordinary miracle through Paul. No, no. He did it regularly. It happened. So maybe a better translation is God was doing extraordinary miracles. Like there's this continual sense. It was happening all the time. And I think a lot of us, we look at this verse and we want to focus our attention on that. Like how do we get to do that? How do we get to continually do miracles, you know, through God, right? How do we do that? But the way that Luke wrote this sentence in the Greek, he's actually highlighting two different parts of this, which is the word God and the word through Paul. You see, the point that, that Luke is trying to make through this passage right here is that, yeah, Paul was doing some pretty amazing things, but behind that, if you were to open up the curtains, if you were to go behind the scenes, you'll find out that it was God doing everything. Paul was just a conduit. Like, Paul sometimes didn't know what he was doing, but God was still doing miracles through him, right? So that's the focus of this verse. And here's an example of what that looked like. So the next verse, Luke explains to us what that looks like. He says, even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him, touched Paul, were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. And okay, again, there's something that's lost in the translation here, okay? The implication here is Paul's working really hard. He's doing God's work, right? He's like preaching, he's teaching, he's helping the poor, he's loving on his neighbor, he's doing all these things, and it's a hot day like today, and he's like, oh man, uh, where's my handkerchief? He wipes his sweat, he puts it down. Somebody's like, hey, that's Paul's handkerchief. They take it, Paul doesn't know it's taken yet. He takes it, and he takes it to his mom or dad who's sick in bed or whatever, and he's like, here, touch it. And they touch it, and they're like, whoa, I'm feeling so much better now. The implication here is that Paul didn't know about it. That Paul wasn't trying to make a miracle happen. It kind of happened without him even knowing about it. And that's the point of this story so far. So in case that we're not really understanding what's happening here, I'm in a little diagram, okay? So over here we have an image, an icon of Jesus, God. Okay, so this is God. 
He is a miracle worker here, okay? And through him, we have the next character, that's Paul. No features on his face because I don't know what he looks like, but okay, that's Paul, okay? And Paul happened to use a handkerchief, which is the next one right here, okay? And somebody takes that handkerchief and then uh, takes it to somebody who's sick over here. And in those days, in the first century, people believed that your sickness was tied to evil spirits, so that's why it's written like that in, the, in this part of Luke. When they touched the, the handkerchief or the apron, the evil spirits left him, making this person feeling much, much better. The point that Luke is trying to show us right here is that there are three degrees of separation from Jesus to Paul, Paul to this handkerchief, handkerchief to this person. <clears throat> God's power is still strong and powerful even when it's three degrees separated. This is like the point that, that Luke is trying to make here, okay? But the whole point here is that this guy right here, Paul, he has no clue that this is actually happening. So, as us, we are reading the book of Acts that is written by Luke, we see things happening behind the scenes, okay? So, you know, if you look at this equation, God and demon, and this square right here, it's kind of those less than, greater than, or equal to. My son's doing that right now in school, so this is what's on my mind. Okay, but <clears throat> is God equal to, less than, or greater than the demons, according to the passage? Well, even when it's three degrees separated, God's power still works and casts out this evil spirit, right? So the answer to this question is, God is greater than the demons, right? It makes sense. Like, when you read it, that's what we see. And because we are reading Luke's version of this story, we see behind the scenes, and we know that's what's actually happening. But if you were a person who didn't read the book of Luke, a Luke, book of Acts written by Luke, but you were actually somebody who witnessed this happening in front of you, somebody takes Paul's handkerchief, you take it to somebody, and that person is healed. That's all you've seen. From the surface level, what you see is this equation. Paul blank demons. Is the power of Paul greater, equal to, or less than the demons? And from their perspective, because they don't know what's happening behind the scenes, they, the answer is Paul is greater than the demons. That's what they're seeing. But from the first verse that we read just a few seconds, a few minutes ago, we know that that's not true. It's actually God who is greater than the demons, not Paul, right? So we're going to read more about this in the, in the next verse. Here we go, next verse. Some Jews, so now we're not talking about Paul anymore, we're talking about some random Jews in the city of Ephesus who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They're like, hey, I just saw Paul do some pretty amazing stuff, although he didn't know that he was doing it, right? And you know what? When he prays, he uses the name of Jesus. So maybe that's the secret. Maybe what we need to do is we need to, to use the name of Jesus when we pray, and when that happens, then miracles will happen, Right? And so this is, what they, this is what they would say. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And as a matter of fact, after they, do, they say these things, it actually works. So, okay, another math problem, okay? When we talk about some Jews, we don't know who they are, to the demons over here, from the surface level, from just observing, is it less than, greater than, or equal to? Well, according to what we just saw, they would probably answer, some Jews are greater than the demons. Okay? But you see, if, what we need to understand is that there's something that's happening here, that there's something that's being lost in observation and understanding of how the spiritual realm works. So I, I want to clarify that right now. And by the way, this is not a typical sermon, right? Because we're talking about like, woo. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> but, but it'll make, I'll, I'll bring it back down to earth in a few minutes. Okay, so this is the first thing we need to know, that the message of God 
is very, very powerful. It's very powerful. The gospel is very powerful. Jesus died for us. The Son of God died for us. He laid his life down for us, and then he looked to his disciples and said, do likewise. The message is powerful because if it calls us to love beyond our capacity at times. We look at people and say, like, that person wronged us, but no, we are going to love that person. We're dedicating our lives to loving our neighbors, regardless of how much we disagree with them. We are dedicating ourselves to inclusion. It doesn't matter how different they look, what they believe, how they look, how different their culture is from ours, how educated they are or not educated they are. We are devoting ourselves to inclusion. And if you were here last week, the teachings of Paul, which is the teachings of Jesus, he's talking about how we need to soften our hearts. This is what we are called to do. And when we're doing that, right, we are becoming more and more the person or the people that God has called us to be. From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, <clears throat> there's a story about humanity, that God put his own image in humanity, and humanity was to become more and more like the creator that, you know, that put them on this earth. But because of sin, we are starting to move, deviate from that. The more greedy we become, the less human we, be, we become. The more lustful we be, become, the more, less human we become, right? And what Jesus is saying is, no, no, I want you to become back, come back to who you're supposed to be. Be fully human. Be fully the person that you were called to be in the first place. And as we are starting to move in that direction, we're loving people, we're caring for people, we're forgiving people, we're being generous towards people. The more we become that, the more we are getting, more, becoming more in line with who God called us to be. And that's what God looks at and says, that is powerful. And when God sees that, he says, man, I just love what humanity is doing right now. I love how they're becoming more the people I want them to be. You know what? Let me assist you. Here's a few miracles. To, I'm going to sprinkle around there because this, you know, so the power of God is manifested not in asking God, hey, God, can you do a miracle? God's miracle happens in assistance to the mission that we have in our lives, which is to love and care. When you think it's impossible to love, God will give you the miraculous power to love that person. When you think it's hard to forgive somebody, God will give you that strength to, 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 to forgive that person. And yes, along the way, there might be healings that happen along the way. There might be people who were, in, it was backed up into a corner, but, but somehow through God's miracles, he was able to come out and now he's living a, a perfectly normal life. Like the way that God works his miracles is through the message. It has to be consistent with the message that God has given us, okay? But here's the problem. The problem is that from the surface level, when you see God working his miracles, we tend to just see the surface level and we misunderstand it with this right here, that the miracles of God are powerful. You see somebody get healed and say, that's what I want. That's what I need in my life. And you know, this is very dangerous. When you focus your life on just miracles, seeing miracles in your life, it's a dangerous thing, especially in Ephesus, because when you are always focusing on miracles, like I want to see something supernatural, there's a few things that are happening here. First, when you become the one that's always seeing miracles, right? Like, oh, I just saw somebody get healed. When I pray for somebody, that person, you know, this, you know, uh, they were able to walk again. They were crippled for their whole life. You know, like when things like that happen, you become popular. People start to pay attention to you. There's a certain amount of power that comes with being the one that's able to connect with God in a way that nobody else can connect. It makes you indispensable. It makes you feel like you're better than everybody else. 
Miracles aren't the problem. It's the way that we, we think that we could manipulate reality that is the problem. When we think about miracles and how we desire to see miracles, this is basically our inability to accept reality. And this was a very, very, and by the way, if you look at human history, you'll see that the occult and things like using spells and miracles and stuff like that, that starts to go on a rise when people get more and more oppressed. It's usually in third world countries that we see people usually practicing these, these arts of, of spells and magic and miracles, right? Because there's a reality that we can't control, so therefore we need to find a way to bring it in under our own control. And as a matter of fact, in the first century amongst Jews, it was very, very common. It was a common thing. As a matter of fact, it's called Jewish incantations. You've probably heard of people like practicing, like practicing witchcraft or whatever, right? And you're like, oh, they're casting spells and stuff like that, right? You're like, that's kind of crazy. <clears throat> that's nothing compared to first century Judaism. In first century Judaism, especially if you go away from Israel, so like Ephesus, a few hundred miles away, you'll see that happen more and more. It's very common. And <clears throat> the reason why we, why we know this is such a big trend and such a big deal back then is because there's writings, holy texts about Jewish incantations. And as a matter of fact, when Jews talk about these incantations of their ancestors, some of the rabbis, look at, they look at that and say, uh, guys, that is not a proud moment in our history. And so now they say, if you were to pray for God to work on your behalf, you have to be limited to either healing or protection, but you can't do the other things. But we know through history and writings that people did practice other forms of incantations, like, like there's incantations about how you could bring curses upon people, how to pe get people to fall in love with you, and summoning, 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 wait, summoning, summoning, that's such a weird word the more you say it, <laughs> summoning uh, angels. As a matter of fact, there's a book that was written, written way after King Solomon died, but it's basically a collection of spells they think that you could use in order to summon these angels to, and make them do the things you want them to do, right? And they're like, these are totally off limits. And there's three assumptions that these Jews made, okay? And here's, here are the three. Number one, that there's power in the name of God. They believe that in those days that your name had equal footing with who you are. So if somebody insulted your name, you're saying you're insulting me, okay? So that's why when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're not just saying we just care about the name of Jesus. We don't care about Jesus, just his name. No, no, no. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you're also calling on who Jesus is. So there's power in the name of God. The second one right here is the power, this power in the name, uh, in the words that God speaks. They look at the book of Genesis and they realize that God spoke certain things into existence. So they said, maybe there's a lot of power in the words of God. If we just quote the things that God says, maybe we can make it work in our liking, okay? The third one is that they believe that the Hebrew language is supernatural in origin. They believe that because the scriptures were written in Hebrew, that it must be a special language. It must be something that is supernatural. Here is one quote from a spell from, uh, from uh, the, the Egyptian Greeks. Okay, this is what they said. And you'll see, I highlighted the words in red that are found in the Bible. Okay, this is what it says. First angel of Zeus, Yao, and you, Michael, which is angel Michael, who, are, uh, who rule heaven's realm, I call on you, Archangel Gabriel, down from Olympus, a brass axe, delight, delighting in dawns, come gracious who view sunset from the dawn. Okay, I haven't said that right, but... But do you see how crazy this is, how ridiculous this is? There's, there's so many different cultures that are mashed together, but this is just a sign of their desperation. They're like, if I just, maybe if I say, call on every God that I know all at once, then maybe it will happen. 
Maybe if I just repeat this line over and over and over again, maybe if I say it until somebody gets emotional in this room, maybe then it'll happen. And this is just a de desperation for, for supernaturalism and, and maybe even attention, right? They're like, I just want God to pay attention to me so that when I pray, it might happen. So going back to the story of Eph in Ephesus, the Jewish exorcists in Ephesus were desperate for power. If we could just get the attention of some deity out there, maybe if I just keep on nagging these gods or my god or whoever, then maybe somebody will get better. Like they would pray these prayers, they'll mix all these names and they'll just attach other names and they just heard Paul use the name of Jesus and something happened, so we'll add him to our repertoire of names that we're gonna call on when we pray. They do these things because they think that, well, with attention will come income and with income comes notoriety. With notoriety comes, well, I become indispensable in my society and I will feel like I'm better than everybody else, right? And we see an example of that in the very next verse. So we're talking about these seven sons of Sceva. Who is this? Well, he says here that as he's a Jewish, Jewish chief priest, and it says that they were doing exactly this. They were calling on all these different names, and they included the name of Jesus in there to see if they could maybe cast out more demons. And in doing so, maybe we'll get more notoriety. Maybe we'll get richer for doing this. And by the way, um, Sceva's not a real chief priest. If you go to a Jewish library, you'll find out there's like a whole long list, like every single chief priest has been listed on this long list of you know, chief priests. And he's, his name is nowhere to be found. Chances are, because this is Ephesus, he was a representation of the chief priest. You know, chief priest usually stays in Israel, right? So this guy is like, a, like the chief priest of the day. He, he has a placard that he probably wears on his chest. And he's like, hey guys, today's my day. I'm the chief priest. He has seven sons, and a few of them were trying to exercise these demons, right? So, bring up this math problem again. So the question now is, are chief priests greater than, equal to, or less than the demons? We're about to find out. Let's read on. One day the evil spirits answered to them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know about. But who are you? Like, imagine, like, these guys are like, hey, hey, we found out that if you just use the name of Jesus, we could cast out more demons. Okay, let's give it a try. And they see this guy they, th they think is demon possessed. And so they start praying over him in the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the evil spirit speaks up. <coughs> Okay, you just use the name of Jesus and the name of Paul. Okay, I know who Jesus is. Paul, I respect a little bit, but I have no idea who you are. I mean, imagine if that happened, like while you're praying and you're like trying to exercise demons. And then this happens. This is like supposed to be comical, but also sad at the same time. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the, of the house naked and bleeding. So here comes these boys running out. They're naked and they're bleeding. It's like, what just happened in that house? Like, yeah, they try to cast out a demon, and the demon's like, uh, yeah, no, you have no authority to do that to me. <laughs> right? So to answer this problem right here, which is chief priest, is it greater than, equal to, or less than demons? The answer to this question is definitely less than. From the surface level, it's easy to misunderstand it and say, okay, that guy cast out that demon, so that person must be greater than demons. But what's happening behind the scenes is actually God who is working. So let's keep reading the verse because it gets more interesting. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in, the, in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So this spreads, you know, rumors get around really fast, right? And the people are like, did you hear about the sons of Sceva? Like, you saw them running around naked in town? Well, that's because this happened. And like, oh my goodness, all right. And then it says many of them, many of those who believed now came and 
openly confessed what they had done. That happened to the sons of Sceva? Well, let me just confess. Uh, I did it the other day too. It's like, oh, oh, me too. Oh, me too. And they're all publicly confessing. Like, guys, we misused the name of Jesus. Uh, we thought we were just dealing with something simple, but we're actually dealing with something better than we ever thought it was. And then from there, even more things, more people come, come forward. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Burning a sacred text is basically your way of renouncing it, saying, I'm permanently distancing myself from what I, what I used to do, what I was affiliated with. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Drachma is a day's wage. 50,000 drachmas is like a lot, right? So, I mean, scholars just say a drachma could be anywhere between a dollar to a hundred dollars in today's, you know, um, working, working world. But even if it was a dollar, $50,000 of books is a lot of books, right? So they got rid of a lot of stuff here. Because these people realized that Jesus is not a spell. Jesus is not some magician. Jesus isn't some power like, hey, there's power just hanging around that I could just use. So let me just grab Jesus and do what I want to do. It's like, that's not who Jesus is. That they discover that God is not to be controlled. Jesus is not to be used to control reality around you. And because of the people finally realizing what miracles are for and how they're used, because they realize that Jesus is not to be used in that way, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. My favorite way of addressing this issue of miracles is what N.T. Wright says. This is what he says. The exorcists in this story uh, thought they could just add the name of Jesus to their repertoire of magic charms only to discover that the demons they were addressing on this occasion respected Jesus and Paul as well, as it turns out, but had no respect for them. The people who were wielding the power actually mattered, right? And then he talks about power. He says the gospel does indeed provide power, but it is not magic. Well, N.T. Wright, how do you define magic? Well, this is what he writes about magic. Magic attempts to gain that power without paying the price of humble submission to the God, to the God whose power it is. The power that we have in Christ is only there if we submit to him. Another way of putting this, a summary of this, is the miracles are byproducts of your devotion to being with Christ, becoming like Christ, and belonging to Christ. Our focus is supposed to be on Jesus. We become more like Jesus. Like, think about it like Paul didn't know that a miracle was happening with his handkerchief. His devotion, his focus was on Jesus and the mission that Jesus has given him. He was just trying to care for the people, love on people, forgive people, teach people to do likewise. And in doing so, without him even knowing about it, somebody took his handkerchief and healed somebody. Miracles is not something that Paul willed to happen, at least not in this part of the story. He does a little bit later on in the story. We'll talk about that in the next few weeks. But at this point in the story, and especially in Ephesus, Paul is concerned with doing the work of God loving on people, preaching the good news. But it is a byproduct of Paul's following Christ that, that this actually happens. Uh, made me think of a better way of explaining this. Um, so my daughter, Mari, will come up to me and ask for treats. She has a sweet tooth. My son doesn't. My, she just, like, she's the kind of person that'll take, like, a gummy worm and she'll lick all the sugar off and say, you want the rest, right? Like, she just loves sweet things, right? And she just keeps saying, like, 
Can I have some? Could I have some? Could I have some? Could I have some? In the same way that a lot of us might say, Lord, can you perform a miracle? Can you do a miracle? Can you do a miracle? Right? And I might give her some, sure, right? But I'm going to be hesitant at times because I know that too much of this stuff is not good for you, or even a little bit. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Don't, I don't give medical advice, okay? But, um, or nutritional advice. <laughs> um, but when I see her doing the things that she's supposed to do, when she does something wrong and she says, I'm sorry, or when she thinks about somebody else before she thinks about herself and says, you know what, you could have my toy. I'll do something else for the time being. Or she shows respect to her teacher. I would say, hey, Mari, come over here. Here's a little treat for you. Do whatever you want with it. Lick it off, I don't know, whatever, right? But that's how God operates when it comes to miracles. It's a byproduct of us following Christ. It's not something we seek for. And that's the difference between magic, spells, incantations, and the miracles of Jesus. God is the miracle worker, not us. We're not the ones that ask for it to happen right here, right now. Yes, in the Old Testament, that might have happened. Different times back then, guys. Okay, but now what he's saying is, do your best at being a disciple of Jesus. And then God may assist you or reward you with something around you that makes you say, wow, my mind is blown. How did you do that? God's like, pretty amazing, huh? There's a Jewish rabbi who studied this stuff. He studied this, the first century of Judaism and how they got obsessed with, with using these uh, spells, magic, incantations, miracles. And this is what he said about, this is Rabbi Jeffrey Dennis. This is what he said. Usually the, the belief underlying the use of thergic spells, that's the, his way of saying miracles, is that God has in some way delegated that power slash authority to the adept. So he's talking about like Moses. He's like, I'm gonna give you this staff and when you go to Pharaoh, show the staff, it'll turn into a snake, and it'll do his wonders. You go to the Red Sea, use that staff, put it down, and the sea will split, right? Like he's talking about how God would choose people to use some of that power and authority. But he says, true magic, truly magical incantations by comparison are autonomous. They do not involve spiritual entities at all. He's saying the best kind of miracles are the ones where it happens without anybody else involved. So it's one thing to say, God cure this person, God cure this person, God cure this person. Should I say it seven more times? Maybe that'll work because seven is such an important number to you, God. God cure this person, God, right? And the person gets cured. Versus one day the person is miraculously cured and there's nobody else that was praying for this person. It just happened. And the reason why he says this is because when a miracle happens without anybody asking it, then you know it was God's will. It wasn't somebody trying to thwart God's plan. It wasn't somebody saying, I just can't accept the reality in my life. I, I, God, can you, change, can you change this? Come on, God, you love me, right? Come on, go, go change this, please, right? He says, the miracles that happen without any involvement, the ones that are autonomous, are the true ones. Miracles that God performs on his own will are the ones that he said that we should be praising. And then, as opposed to the miracles that we want God to perform on our behalf, there's a difference. But he says some of the greatest miracles are the ones when the two are combined. I'll give you an example of that. You see, let's just say that you're on your path following Christ. You're doing your best to love on people. You're trying your best to care for the sick, and you're doing all that stuff, right? And as you're following Christ, you start to see a few steps ahead. You start saying, like, I think this is where God is trying to lead us. And so you start praying for that thing that God is leading you towards. So what you want and what God wants are one and the same. So in other words, these two things become combined. And because you're praying for the things that God is always, already going to do anyways, 
He's like, those are the miracles that we should all be seeking. These are the things we should be praying for. Find out what God is doing and pray for that. And he says that's the best combination of prayers that you could put together that would make, because God's going to do it anyways, it's going to happen, but you had a part in it also because you're praying for it to happen. So the whole point here is this, guys, and this is the most important thing that I think, I mean, today we're talking about miracles. We're going to re- bring it back down to earth right now. The point that Luke is trying to make in this section of, of Acts is this, that we cannot confuse partnering with God with controlling God. I think, and this worries me sometimes, because when I sometimes listen to Christians pray, and they're asking God to do certain things, that's fine, right? But it gets to a certain point where I feel like they're just trying to control God, telling God what to do, as if we're wiser than he is. Like, I know, God, you're doing this, and you're doing your thing right here, but I have a better idea. What if you do this? and you do this, when I pray and this happens exactly, then people are going to be like, wow, God is great. And more people are going to get to know you and they're going to follow you. Let's do that, God. And God's like, are you saying that your plan's better than mine? And as a matter of fact, when you ask for that, isn't there a little bit of ego that's in there? Like, because you have to be the one that prays and it has to happen when you pray and you want people to see it happen and then, or if they're not here to see, see it happen, you're going to go on Instagram and tell people about it or whatever, right? It's like, are you sure there isn't a little bit of ego in there? Maybe, you just, you, you, maybe your issue isn't that you want to see God working in everyone's life. Maybe your issue is that you want to bring attention to you, that you have a hard time accepting reality. So we can't confuse following Jesus for controlling Jesus. And I think that's the point of this, this section in the book of Acts. So how do we know if we're doing this or not? Well, we have to ask this question. Do we follow Jesus so we can control the realities around us? Like, I'm sure you've heard this before. When you said that I'm going to follow Jesus from here on out, was it because somebody promised you something like, hey, if you follow Jesus, then, you know, You'll feel joy for the rest of your life, or I don't know what what deal they offered you, right? But was it, if you follow Jesus, then God will give you this? Was it, if you follow Jesus, then the realities around you will change? Was there a trade-off that happened? Because when I read the scriptures, what I see instead is not people saying, hey, come follow Jesus, because if you do, then this will be given to you. When I read scriptures, it says when you follow Jesus, you might have to lay your life on the line for the well-being of this world. It's very dangerous to follow Jesus because you think there's something in it for you. Am I saying there isn't anything for you? No, I'm not saying that. There are things in it for you, but that shouldn't be the reason why we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because we love him, because he's God. It's a really difficult question to answer. But I think answering this question will help you understand why you're following Jesus in the first place and maybe why you pray the way you pray. Amen? Amen.